go in there? Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome to the No Sleep Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about the creepy people who share our living spaces. Well, life returns to abnormal at No Sleep Headquarters. The tour is over, Halloween is done for another year, and Season 13 resumes its steady march into madness. I want to express my sincere thanks to the No Sleep home team who looked after the show while the Halloween tour was in full swing, to that rascal Peter Lewis and all the voice actors who, well, who did what they did hosting the show while we were away. Thanks for keeping us entertained in your own diabolical ways. To our admin team who kept things running smoothly, Olivia White, Phil Mykolski, and Kristen Neubert. Fantastic as always. And of course, Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett, who, along with Phil, kept our stories sounding great. You are all such a fantastic team. You have my undying gratitude. And of course, I have to send out sincere thanks to our tour team, Jessica, David, Nicole, and Brandon, along with the many guest actors who joined us on stage for the tour. You made the live tour a simply wonderful time for all. And to those who came out to the live shows, Thank you. We have such amazingly supportive fans, and it was such a pleasure to perform for you and meet many of you after the shows. And as I like to remind our European listeners, don't forget that your tour is coming soon. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com slash tour to get your tickets to our Euro 2020 tour in January. Time is running out, so act fast. Now we move forward. Forward towards the end of Season 13, towards the Christmas season, and towards the New Year. Most of all, forward towards this week's stories. So, turn down the lights and grab the remote, because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we meet a... Uh, we, we meet a writer uh, who... Uh, no, sorry. It's it's no good. I can't think of what to say here. I've been struggling with writer's block, you see. And that's a struggle that the writer we meet in this tale can relate to, shared with us by author Meredith Katz. However, when she meets a woman at a library sale, she gains a new roommate and finds the woman's company much appreciated while the writing doesn't come. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis and Mary Murphy. So don't worry if you don't know what to say. I'm sure inspiration will strike you, especially when you're in the presence of the bookworm.
I first met the person who was to become my new roommate at the library's biannual book sale. We bumped into each other as we both reached for the same book. I don't remember what it was, not by now. What I do remember is how dry her hand felt when it brushed over mine. I jerked my face up to hers in shock as her touch lingered longer than was polite. You write. I did write, and had been utterly confused how she knew. I don't much resemble my author photo, made in ideal lighting with my makeup done. I didn't say anything in response, but my expression must have shown my thoughts, because she laughed. Writer's callous. I pulled my hand away, realizing her fingers were still resting on mine. You probably outline in a journal. Yeah, good call. I was a little impressed despite myself and flustered by her attention. She took the book we'd both wanted, her prize for her detective work, and waved it at me with a wink before returning to browsing. I tried to keep sight of her amid the crowd that threatened to swallow her in its tight press, and it looked to me as though she were doing the same, glancing back my way, wandering closer every so often. But before we could meet again, my roommate Carl caught up to me with his own finds, a stack of reference books. I stopped trying to spot her as we discussed which ones we thought would be useful to our writing and which ones would not, and I didn't see her again before Carl and I headed out together. Still, I thought about her often, though in the abstract. I forgot the specifics of her face almost as soon as I'd first looked away, beyond the fact that she had long brown hair, an ordinary nose, ordinary mouth. She had been taller than me, though as a short woman myself that wasn't unusual. A soft body, neither on the thicker side nor the thinner. Unremarkable. Her eyes, though... Those were an odd, pale tan, light enough I'd almost thought she was wearing colored contacts. It wasn't exactly that she was my type. To this day, I'm not entirely sure whether or not I'm attracted to her. But regardless, something about her made it difficult to get her out of my mind. I wrote her into a half dozen love interests in my first drafts. Then, having to admit I knew nothing about her except what I had imagined from our brief interaction, I slowly weeded her out of the second draft, as I pushed my characters into more interesting forms on revision. Carl made fun of me for this trend. We both edited each other's works for submission, so he read those first drafts in painful detail. But the teasing didn't last long. Shortly after I'd begun this embarrassing tendency, he got a girlfriend, and the time he spent with her took his attention away from writing. I never met her, which was just as well. I preferred that things were quiet in the apartment we shared, and out of respect to that, he only had her over when I was already out. It had been her suggestion, he told me, to not disturb his roommate. I approved of her on that much alone, especially compared to his previous relationships. Yet, even when he was home and in the rare mood to look at someone else's work, he was distracted. He had fewer and fewer suggestions and often seemed to have missed information I'd already made clear as little as a sentence earlier. I stopped going to him for edits. It was mutual. He stopped asking me to edit his work also, but I think that was largely because he stopped writing. He never wanted to even brainstorm ideas, and when I brought it up first, he grew sullen and snappish. 
Writer's block will do that to a person. But the situation lasted, and our living situation quickly began to change from a fond companionship which fed on our similar interests to a strange tolerance of each other's presence. And eventually, he just moved out, gone to be with his girlfriend. It was almost a relief by then, though I wish he'd given me more notice to find a replacement and had been somewhat hurt by how he immediately fell out of contact. The only real solace I had was that his other friends were complaining of his absence also. It left me in a tight spot. I didn't know anyone else in town who was looking for a new place, and despite my reluctance, I put out an ad. I did my best to make it friendly, while still sliding in the details that would hopefully turn away people with too incompatible a lifestyle. Single queer woman writer seeks roommate. Female and or queer preferred but negotiable. Pets okay. Looking for a voracious reader whose idea of a fun afternoon is to sit around devouring one of the many books I have here. I immediately got a few hits. The first didn't call back. The second was a guy whose loud, aggressive enthusiasm made him an immediate pass. And the third... The third was the girl from the book sale. I recognized her eyes instantly. And with those smiling down at me, the rest of her features fell into place. Oh, it's you. It's you. For a moment, I couldn't bring myself to step away from the doorway. It felt surreal, unnatural. This city was too big to be this small. But then, the sort of person who'd identify a writer by a callus was also the sort of person who'd be drawn to the ad I'd placed. That discomfort settled again, and I stepped aside. Let me show you around. She wandered after me, eyeing the apartment with a sort of strange fondness, as if she saw things she'd recognized and liked what she saw. With the number of books strewn around, that was no surprise. Eventually, as I led her away from the second bedroom and back into the living room, she stopped in front of my bookcase next to the desk and pondered the duplicates of the romance novels there, my author copies. Claudia Prisco? That's me. I tried not to make excuses, tried not to let myself show the embarrassment I could feel squeezing my chest. I was proud of my work, but it's impossible not to be aware of how romance was perceived by the general public. I've read some of your work. (laughs) I hope that doesn't disqualify me. I know fans can get a little weird. Something inside me relaxed at those words. I was smiling at her laughter, helpless to it. No, of course not. I'm always glad to have a fan. And if you like reading, this is the place for you. I'm a total bookworm. Your ad was really appealing, promising me free reads and all, especially since I already know I can trust your taste. She smiled again, and I caved entirely. She didn't seem like she'd be one of those fans who put pressure on an author to constantly write what they wanted to read, but simply a fellow reader. Perhaps things could go back to how they had been before, a quiet writer's retreat where I could bounce ideas off someone near to hand. But life changes always distract you from your ability to focus, and this was no exception. Instead of writing, I was dealing with the landlord, getting the lease switched around. Instead of writing, I was adjusting to a new person's behaviors and life schedule. And as nice as her company was, 
Her habits were at least a little odd. She never ate in the apartment. She couldn't cook, or so she claimed, and didn't like most prepackaged food, so she was never at home for meals. She stayed away for long hours of the day at her job at the university library, leaving the place distractingly silent. Still, she came back in the evenings, joking that she was a nocturnal creature. And in order to feel as if I had some company, I began to adjust my schedule to fit hers. After a while, in an attempt to inspire myself to push through the writer's block I was struggling with, I asked her if I could run some ideas by her. She brightened visibly at the offer. Claudia, I would like nothing more. So I explained the basic plot of the story I was working on, the characters, their motivations. She listened with rapt attention, eagerly taking the story in as I fed it to her. She made some suggestions along the way, and I made a note to write them down. Tomorrow, though, I remember thinking that. After I'd spent so much time working out the details with her, the night had grown late and I was tired. But in the morning, I could no longer remember the conclusion I'd come to from talking to her, or any of the details she'd suggested. I remembered that we'd talked about it, but nothing more. Embarrassing, but sometimes it was like that. You promised yourself you'd remember later, but there were always other things to crowd the words right out of your head. I didn't want her to think I hadn't paid attention to her, so I put that story aside for a time and decided to work on another one I had in progress. Again, the writer's block came over me, worse than before, likely from me trying to switch gears between stories. But I couldn't seem to remember the plot at all for this other one. It had happened to me before. Usually I hadn't finalized things enough before putting it aside. Still, it was a frustrating day, thinking through possibility after possibility, none of them feeling like they really worked, like they fit. Again, that night, I bounced details off her. Maybe you can help me come up with a plot if I explain the characters. She sat, attentive, as I did so. Again, she made suggestions, and by the end, I felt like a solution was in reach if I just gave it a little more thought and attention. I didn't want to make the same mistake as I had before, and so even though it was late and I felt deeply drained... I went looking for my journals, only to find that I had misplaced them. I remembered having taken them out from their usual slot on my shelf, but I didn't remember where I'd left them, and they didn't turn up in any of the usual places I checked. Defeated, I scribbled down a few bullet point notes on an envelope and went to bed. This time, I would remember, I was sure, and I would find the journals in the morning. I did not. I went out and bought a new journal and went to write up what I recalled, but my memory was blank. The bullet points didn't help. It was like reading notes on a completely unfamiliar story. How they were meant to fit together to make a solid through line must have made sense to the tired me of the night before, but they did not make sense to the me of today. This was to set the standard for how things would go from then on. My writer's block has not improved with time. If anything, it's only worsened. The idea of plotting out an entire story seems ludicrous by now. The characters I come up with feel flat and two-dimensional, 
Occasionally, I write down some images or turns of phrase that I like, but when I reread them, I realize they're taken directly from my other works. During this time, my roommate has been my only salvation. What little I've managed to jot down has been largely based on her. Her appearance, the things I've heard her say, strange little habits she has, the way she picks up a book to read it and runs her finger over each word as if she could take the text in better that way. And every evening we talk writing. I hope that these creative discussions will bring that creative spark back. But if anything, I feel more drained. A part of me wants to give up entirely. Maybe, maybe I need some time away from all this. To rest and recover from whatever's caused all these holes in my memory. But every evening, she smiles expectantly, hungry for our chats, and I can't let her down. If the state I'm in right now continues, she might be the only fan I'll have left, but at least I'll have her. So I do my best to find whatever plots or characters or even just fragments of ideas I still have inside me. As long as she has faith in my writing, I'm sure there's meaning in my continuing, because she knows books inside and out. Whatever I'm creating must have value if she still wants me to share it with her. After all, she's a real bookworm. Sometimes a fresh start is exactly what's needed. And that's the case for the man in our next tale, who moves out of his hometown to get away from his parents. But he soon learns that while you can escape the past, you can never escape yourself. In this tale, shared with us by author Holloway Green, we discover that this sentiment can be very literal. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson and Sarah Thomas. You see, because a doppelganger can be a portent of doom and disaster, and according to our main character, that would be just my luck. I had been down on my luck for months now. First, stress and anxiety got to me and I dropped out of school. Because of that, my parents cut me off financially and ceased all communications. I finally just gave up and gathered what was left of my savings to start over. On a whim, I picked up my meager belongings and fled my hometown. I had no friends to really say goodbye to, no siblings to miss, no girlfriend to beg to come with me. Just two disappointed parents and a few fruitless semesters into a useless degree. I took a bus to a new city, one I had picked somewhat arbitrarily. It had the closest ratio of employment rates and cost of living, at the expense of being a bit higher on the crime rate. I wasn't too worried. Worst case scenario, if I wound up not being able to find a job, maybe it would be easy to find someone to put me out of my misery. 
The bus dropped me off at a motel I would be staying at while looking for a job and a more stable place to live. It was a bit dingy, but honestly not as bad as I was expecting. It was right by an airport and some fast food restaurants on a pretty busy street just off the main thoroughfare. It was well lit and populated. I took in a long breath and for the first time in a long time felt some sense of relief. I was away from college pursuing a degree in something I clearly did not excel at. Away from my parents who for my whole life only showed disapproval and coldness towards me. Away from the loneliness, the prying eyes of everyone around me, as if they could sense that something was wrong with me. That I was defective. That I would amount to nothing. That I was... nobody. I was a new person here. No one knew who I was. I could be somebody. That was exhilarating. I picked up my two luggage bags and walked to the motel entrance. Inside, there were a few people roaming around, most either checking out to catch their flight or checking in, jet-lagged and cranky. I turned my attention to the woman behind the front desk, middle-aged, bony, with red hair the color of candy apples and wearing ample blush in relatively the same shade. She raised her eyebrows expectantly at me and I shuffled over. Her name tag read Sharon. Hey there, checking in? Uh, yes, I didn't make a reservation or anything, though. She smiled in a polite customer service way, not a warm way. No worries, sugar. We have rooms available. May I see some ID, please? I reached into my pocket and withdrew the only form of ID I had available, my student one. I had never gotten a driver's license. Sharon accepted it at first, but then looked back at me and raised an eyebrow. Sorry, we can't accept this form of ID. I need one that shows your birthday on it. You need to be over 18 to rent a room. I'm 22. Don't I look it? I cracked a half-hearted smile, which Sharon did not return. Sorry. She held out my ID back to me. I just gawked at it, stupidly. I was tired from the bus ride and clinging to the small amount of hope I had built up. Please... I have plenty of cash. Isn't that enough? I removed a few crumpled hundreds, my entire life's worth, and showed them to her. Sharon, to my even deeper disappointment, looked not swayed, but rather disgusted. We don't room your kind around here. What is my kind? No ID and just cash. We don't cater to drifters and dealers. This is a nice part of town. Lots of families coming in from the airport. This is a family-run joint, not a chain. We can't afford to rent based on faith of goodwill. Her eyes drifted to my ID. And you don't even really look like this photo. I guffawed and didn't care how desperate I sounded. I dropped my volume to match hers. Look, Sharon, I'm having a real tough time. Please. I just got here from out of town. I'm trying to make a new life for myself. I'm not a druggie, and... I took the ID back. This is a few years old. She eyed me suspiciously, but the pathetic look I must have had on my face finally softened her. 
She took the ID back with a sigh and typed up my name into the computer. Fine. But if you get up to trouble, may God himself have mercy on me for what I will do to you. I cracked a little smile at that, relieved and admittedly a little bit charmed. Thank you. Uh-huh. She handed me my ID back. And honey, you are a hard 22. It was a few days later when I was walking in the city that I saw him. In a place hundreds of miles from your home, it would be very coincidental to see someone you knew, especially if they had no business being there. It must be even more coincidental to see yourself. I was walking in a throng of people while crossing a crosswalk, hands in my pockets, on my way to the Salvation Army to look for some interview clothes. I glanced up, and he seemed to do the same thing at the exact same time, and our eyes met. He looked exactly like me, down to the minutia. Same scruffy brown hair, same dull green eyes, same scar on his cheek from a childhood dog bite. He wasn't wearing the same clothes as me, nor ones I even owned, but definitely ones that I would have picked out. We passed each other. And I turned and looked over my shoulder to try and comprehend what I just saw. He, in turn, did the same. And we stared, still walking in opposite directions. His face was only slightly nonplussed and wide-eyed, less so than the baffled confusion I felt like I was wearing. He suddenly turned around and hurried across the crosswalk. Then, like a wave receding back into the sea, he disappeared into a group of people. I was dumbfounded. I mean, it's, it's not outside the realm of possibility to see people who look sort of like you. There are only so many ways the features of a human face can be arranged. But he was a spitting image of me. Every detail, even the way he walked and carried himself. It wasn't someone who looked like me, or a long-lost twin, or anything like that. It was me. I abandoned my plans that day and went straight back to the motel, locking myself in my room. I felt dazed and like I was in a dream, constantly second-guessing whether I had just experienced what I indeed had definitely just experienced. I hyperventilated and felt like I was losing my mind. Maybe he wasn't even real. Maybe I had just imagined him. That made sense. That was the most likely scenario, right? I was stressed out, probably more than I realized, and simply mistook a similar-looking stranger for my twin. I sat on the floor of my motel room and buried my face in my hands, half laughing and half letting out a cry of frustration. I slept, fitfully, my dreams haunted by a familiar face in the expansive landscape of an unfamiliar place. The next day, I saw him again, and almost screamed in public. He was sitting at the bus stop outside the motel, the very same one I had arrived at. I was returning from a grocery shopping trip and saw him across the street. He hadn't yet noticed me. His face was buried in his phone, and he tapped his foot impatiently on the ground. Shit. 
I had that exact same habit. I hid behind the corner of a building and spied on him, a cold dread washing over me inch by inch, as though I were wading into ice water. He was so... normal. He acted just like a normal human, just like how I would act. And with every passing second, I realized with abject terror that I wasn't crazy. That I wasn't stressed out. He was me. I was looking at myself. I clutched my grocery bag to my chest and tried to breathe. Though my chest felt tight and my throat was sandpapery. I could feel the clammy sweat beginning to rise on my skin. He was so close to where I was staying. Had he followed me here? How did he know where I was? What did he want? That question hung in the air around me, and it reminded me of something I read when I was younger. It was a children's book of old folk tales from around the world, and one story in particular felt woefully familiar. The English referred to it as a fetch. The ancient Egyptians, a ka. The Finnish, etiainen, is loosely related. But I knew it by one word. Doppelganger. And what did it want? Well, I had remembered that part of the story very well, because the image of being stalked by your double haunted me for years. If you see a doppelganger, it is always a harbinger of doom and bad luck, and ultimately, death. I bit my lip and felt my heart beat quickened to an almost painful pace. Maybe this creature had been following me for much longer than I knew, given the string of unfortunate circumstances that had plagued me recently. Maybe only now it was making itself visible to me, in order to collect on what it wanted most from me. Suddenly, as though sensing my fear, as though he could smell it, he looked up at me, and our eyes met again. This time, his narrowed. He stood up, backpack slung over his shoulder, phone in hand, and glanced both ways down the street. Oh god, he was going to come for me. My muscles tensed and I prepared to run, but before he could even step off the curb, a bus approached the stop he was at, obscuring the line of sight between us. I took the opportunity and scrambled away, and didn't return to the motel until late that night. I didn't sleep. I saw his face when I closed my eyes. Things only got worse from then on. I saw him everywhere. On the street, at various bus and subway stops, at the library, at the park. Hell, he was even shopping at the grocery store I was turning an application into. There was always distance between us, several yards at least. Every time I tried to slip away, his eyes would always catch mine, and his expression grew angrier and angrier every time we met. His eyes looked more and more like a predator's, and I felt myself feeling more and more like prey. I'm sure he was frustrated with me, frustrated that I was constantly fleeing and depriving him of his meal wherever he saw me. A piece he needed to finally be whole? 
I had no idea. But with every passing day, my paranoia deepened, and I eventually sequestered myself away in my motel room. I left only to run to the gas station or one of the airport restaurants for food, and always in the cover of night, with a small Salvation Army pocket knife clutched in my fist. Sharon, who I considered my only lifeline at this point, began to notice how haggard and distressed I was becoming. Apparently, she was the only front desk person, so she always saw my comings and goings. One night, after coming back with a dinner of Pepsi and Doritos in my arms, she waved me over and looked at me sternly. Honey, you doing okay? I... I felt a lump in my throat. I could reach out to her. I could tell her the truth. Maybe she could help me. But in her... I saw a tiny fragmented piece of my mother, the one who always promised to listen to me and then brushed off my problems like there were nothing, like I was nothing. I'm fine, tired from the job hunt, you know. Sharon clearly picked up on my lie and crossed her hands in front of her. I can tell you're tired, real tired. Try to get some rest, okay? Never knew a guy to forget his own room number and lose a key in the same day. <laughs> uh, by the way, if that turns up, do bring it back to me. We've only got the one spare, and they cost $150 to duplicate. I tilted my head a little and frowned. What? I didn't lose the key. Sharon let out a short, hesitant laugh, as though testing the waters to see if I was joking with her. <laughs> uh... The key you told me you lost about 20 minutes ago. I gave you the duplicate. You even asked me what room you were staying in again. Her unsure smile turned into a concerned look. Uh, you ever had memory loss before? Do you need me to call a doctor? No. I felt that all-familiar ice-water feeling hit my skin. God, it even had the same name as me. Sorry about the key. I'll look for it. Thanks. Each word struggled to escape my mouth, and I felt like I was struggling to even make coherent syllables. Sharon looked like she was going to say something else, but I turned and rushed to my room, juggling my snacks, my key, and the pocket knife. A sudden surge of adrenaline struck me, and I realized I was done with running. I had been running from my problems my whole life. I mean, I literally ran away to this city. And this thing was trying to take that life I was trying so hard to build. It wanted to destroy me. Use me to complete something in it that was incomplete. If death was inevitable, then I would at least go down fighting. I slid the key into my motel room lock and turned. Despite the pure energy rushing through my veins, I was terrified, and my thoughts were racing with conflicting messages. Run in and kill the fucking thing! No, no, run away. Skip town. Go to another new city. No, don't let it take what is truly yours! I opened the door slowly. The lights were on, despite me having turning them off when I left. So I knew he was in there. 
I stepped in and saw that he was sitting at the foot of my bed, hands on his lap, totally calm and collected. He looked up when I entered, and I quickly dropped my groceries and closed the door behind me. I was shaking. He wasn't. You're here. My heart dropped. He had my voice. Why are you here? I meant it to sound like a command, but my voice didn't sound nearly as confident and collected as his. He stood up, and I took a step back, now flush against the door. My confidence deflated. To finish this, you've been following me. I want to know why. Who are you? I felt strangely offended. Who am I? Who are you? And you've been following me. I'm the real me, and you're a monster. I fumbled with the pocket knife, but managed to flick the blade open and pointed at him. My voice and hands both equally shook, and every fight-or-flight response in my body was firing at once. I won't let you kill me. I won't give you the satisfaction. Nice try. He rushed me. I tried to swing the knife at him, but it was abysmally small to begin with, and he had the upper hand and easily dodged it. He slammed me against the door, hands around my throat, and then pushed me down to the ground. I gagged and struggled. The pressure on my neck made it hard to think, and I knew I only had seconds to act before I lost consciousness. I still gripped the pocket knife in my hand, but it was slippery from my sweat and I didn't have full range of motion in my arms. Plus, he was strong, but only as strong as me. With one swing that used up all the energy I had at that moment, I brought up my arm and slashed his tricep. He instinctively loosened his grip at the pain and I took my opportunity. I pressed my feet to his pelvis and kicked him back. Then, I was the one who was on top of him. He let out a gasp, but it was futile, as I cut him off by plunging the knife into his neck. I don't really know how many times I stabbed him. I stabbed and stabbed and stabbed, trying to compensate for the short length of the blade with pure force. Bright red blood leaked out of his neck like a punctured kiddie pool, and I was sickened and in awe. These creatures bleed the exact same red as the rest of us. They're perfect copies. I stabbed and stabbed until his body relaxed and his eyelids drifted halfway down over his eyes. It was only then that I realized I had been holding my breath almost the entire time, and that my arm was aching from the exertion. I let out the breath I had been holding, and pulled back and sat down on the floor next to the doppelganger's corpse. I panted and looked down at my hands and shirt, both saturated and sticky with its blood. I smiled to myself. I had won! I had beaten him. Now there was nothing standing in my way. Nothing to stop me from living the life I knew I deserved. But, despite my elation, 
an odd feeling crept over me. As I reflected back on my life before the city, the life I was glad to leave behind, I realized how much of it was missing. How much I had just never thought about before. What was the name of my hometown? What was the name of my college? What had I even majored in? What were my parents' names? Fuck. What was my name? Every memory before stepping off that bus felt hazy and blurry, like trying to recall a dream a few days after you had it. You're not sure which parts you made up or which parts you actually experienced. I looked over to the corpse next to me, as if he could help. And then... I remembered why I had come here in the first place. To this city. From a town that didn't exist. From a life that didn't exist. I had come here to be somebody. An unseen force guided my eyes to the corpse's front pocket where a wallet was poking out. This was one of the few things that differed between us. I didn't have much to carry. Curious, I grabbed it and opened it up. He had a student ID as well, but one from a prestigious university in the city. There were photos of him and a girl, his girlfriend I assumed. One of him and two smiling parents, a handful of younger siblings, lots of credit cards, ticket stubs, receipts, a life worth living. I grinned. My life worth living. It looked like my luck was finally turning around. Horror fiction can be fun and safe. And in this story, we meet a family who move into a new house. Soon, one of the children begins talking about a girl she's met in the house. Imaginary friend? Well, the family seems to think so. But in this tale, shared by author Whitley O'Brien, when the family opens a sealed door to the attic, a malevolent presence begins to manifest. And this story really happened to Whitley and her family. Yes, this nightmare is decidedly non-fiction. Performing this tale is Jessica McAvoy. So skeptics and believers come together and make up your own mind, but we're reliably informed that what you're about to hear is the truth, and these things really happened in The House on Campground Road. To give you a little background on my family, the sister in question is named Haley. She's the youngest of my mother's four children, and by all accounts, the baby. She was a whiny kid. Very attached to my mother and no one else. I'm the oldest, so I was saddled with babysitting often. At the time of these events, I was 15. My brother, Ted, was 10. My middle sister, Anna, was six. 
and Haley was four. Our family had just moved into a new house, and though it had its fair share of flaws, looking at you, lack of AC, it was large enough for our family and the price was right. The only weird thing about it was the short staircase in the kitchen that culminated in a locked door. The landlord said that it went to the attic and was kept locked because the flooring wasn't safe. Kinda weird, but whatever. We had plenty of room in the lower part of the house. We shared a tiny dead-end street with four other houses, only two of which were currently occupied. The yard was enormous, and it was within walking distance of a small park. For the most part, we were happy there. Around the time that we moved in, Haley started to tell us about her friend, Jella. She went everywhere with us, and Haley made sure we saved her a seat. She described her as a little girl with blonde hair like her own, and said that she always wore a dress. This was odd, because Haley herself loathed wearing dresses, or skirts, or anything vaguely feminine. To contrast, Anna was the prissiest princess that ever set foot on this earth, so we just assumed that Haley had pulled inspiration from her big sister for her new friend. In the following months, it wasn't unusual to find Haley chatting away in an empty room or playing alone more often. Everyone chalked it up to her being lonely while all the other kids were at school. It wasn't until the heat of summer threatened to boil us alive that we realized something more was going on. The first incident was almost put down to weird coincidence. We had a routine of cleaning house every Sunday. Everyone was assigned a room, in addition to their bedroom, and was expected to clean it. Haley and Anna usually got easy jobs like the laundry room. Me and Ted fought over who had to clean the kitchen and who got the relatively easy tasks of tidying up the bathroom or living room. On this particular day, I lucked out and got the living room. I had just finished putting away the vacuum and was ready to settle down on the couch and watch some TV when I was annoyed to see a square of white paper lying in the middle of the floor. I'd like to clarify that it was lying in the middle of the floor. It wasn't close enough to any furniture or shelves for it to have fallen off of anything. I was sure that someone had come through and dropped trash on my clean floor. But when I bent to pick it up, I was surprised to see that it was a photo. It was about four inches by four inches, and it had the slightly faded, milky quality of an old photograph. It was in color, so it couldn't have been too ancient, but it was clear to see that it wasn't taken in my lifetime. The subject of the photo was a little girl. She looked to be about four or five, wearing a white dress with pink bows and white dress shoes with frilly white socks. She was small and slim, but her face looked older than her years. She was smiling, but she didn't look happy. It was the sort of smile you give when someone tells you to smile. She was standing in front of a chain link fence, overgrown with ivy, and nothing else was visible in the frame. I immediately took it to my mom and asked her who it was and where it had come from. She flipped it over to the back, which was, of course, blank. She assumed it was a child of an old friend, or maybe a distant cousin, and while she couldn't think of any reason it would have ended up on the living room floor, she didn't think twice about it. Until Haley popped in and asked where we got a picture of Jella. My blood ran cold at her words. 
Upon closer inspection of the photo, the fence and ivy looked extremely similar to the fence in our backyard. We were all more than a little freaked out. Well, except Haley. From then on, we paid more attention to her when she talked about Jella. It was complete coincidence when we figured out that she was trying to say Angela, but her four-year-old mind came up with Jella instead. The next incident involved me, home alone with a migraine, during a thunderstorm. The rest of the family had gone to the store, but seeing as my head felt like it was in danger of exploding, I decided to sit that one out. I was sleeping on the couch in the living room, with my back to the room. It was late afternoon, so the room was dimly lit. A particularly loud crack of thunder woke me, and I flipped over to face the room and opened my eyes. My heart dropped instantly. Standing no more than three feet in front of me was Angela. She looked almost exactly as she had in the photo, except she looked scared and she had her arm outstretched in my direction. I couldn't speak or move. She couldn't have been there for more than five seconds, but it felt like ten minutes. Finally, I squeezed my eyes shut, and when I opened them, she was gone. She hadn't looked threatening at all. To be honest, she looked terrified herself. As a mother myself now, I can't help but think that she must have been scared of the storm and seeking comfort from the only person she could. But as a teenager, I was scared out of my mind. I immediately called my mom and demanded that they come home as quickly as possible. After that incident, I was leery of being left home alone. This probably delighted my mom, as it meant I would go places with the family more often, rather than staying home being an antisocial teen. Other odd things happened here and there, but nothing that couldn't be explained away rationally, and definitely nothing that felt scary or threatening. It even became something of a joke to everyone in the house to talk to Angela. Hey, Angela, get me a soda. Aw, man, Angela must have let the dog out. I didn't pinch you. Must have been Angela. Spoiler alert, it wasn't Angela. The next time I saw Angela for myself was in broad daylight, and I was with my brother, Ted. We were all buckled into my mom's hideous astro van and ready to go out to dinner, when the inevitable happened. Anna had to pee. It never failed that at least one person would need to go to the bathroom after we were already out of the house. So my exasperated mother took her back into the house. Not even a minute passed before Haley decided that she also had to pee. I unbuckled her from her car seat and let her out the door, instructing her to go ahead and go back into the house before mom came back out. I watched her as she ran across the driveway, chubby legs pumping and blonde hair flying. Then I sat back and waited for her to come back out. Being the oldest of four, I had a strong maternal instinct already so I was subconsciously watching from the corner of my eye for her to come back out of the door to make sure she didn't run into the road as she came back around the van. I should point out that, at her height, all I could see of Haley if she was right alongside the van would be the very top of her head. So, when not even a minute had passed and I saw a shiny blonde head bounce alongside the van, 
I instinctively turned to look out the back window to track her progress and make sure she didn't end up in the road. All I saw out the back window was the empty driveway. My heart sped up and I turned my head left and right, trying to see where she had gone. But there were no little girls, in the road or otherwise. Just as I was about to get out of the van, the door opened and my mom came out of the house, followed by both of my sisters. Of course, I asked if Haley had left the house earlier, but I already knew the answer. There was no way her little legs could have taken her from the van to the house in seconds and without me seeing her. I wasn't comforted in the least when Haley insisted on sitting in the back with me, since that was where Angela was sitting. For whatever reason, Angela seemed to be more connected to me than any of the others, excluding Haley, of course. I don't know if it was because I was more open to that sort of stuff, I had always enjoyed the paranormal, or if she simply wanted an older sister. Either way, me and Haley were the only ones to see her for most of the summer. That's not to say we were the only ones to witness her actions, though. For the most part, she became just a part of the house, quiet and unobtrusive, even helpful at times. Like the time we had locked the keys in the house. Tried every door and window there was and found them all locked. Just before we broke a window to get in, I jokingly called out to Angela, asking her to open the door. To everyone's shock, the next time we tried the back door, the knob turned effortlessly. Towards the end of the summer, my brother and I had invited some friends over, one of whom was generally a troublemaker named Justin. Being who he was, he quickly latched onto the idea of opening the locked door to the attic. We had all been curious when we first moved in, but after living in the house a while, we just kind of forgot about it. I had a bad feeling when I thought about opening it up, but not wanting to be a party pooper, I went along with it. After obtaining reluctant permission from my mom, Justin set about popping the lock with a steak knife. In no time at all, the door swung open and a gust of cold air wafted over us where we stood on the stairs. After glancing at each other nervously, my other friends and I urged Justin forward. It was his idea after all, and if anyone was going to be possessed, it was only fair that it be him. He disappeared into the pitch black doorway and seconds later, a light poured from the room. There was a moment of silence before he poked his head back out and told us to come up. Stepping inside, the first thing I noticed was the bare bulb hanging from the center of the room. The switch was attached to a long string, dangling almost to the floor. As I looked around, it became clear why the string was so long. This was a child's room. There was a tiny wooden table and chair against one wall, and childish stickers on the walls. The room was barely bigger than a large closet and had a wooden floor, unlike the downstairs, which was carpet and linoleum. At the far side of the room, two small doors were set in the wall. Upon further inspection, we found that these opened up to the rest of the attic. That part was unfinished and there was no stable flooring. So my mom put her foot down as far as us exploring that area. We were able to see, with the help of a flashlight, that there was all kinds of junk stored in there, from previous tenants most likely. At this point, 
The entire family and all of our friends had crowded into the small space. We were all pretty creeped out, but it was interesting. I know I wasn't the only one wondering if Angela had ever sat in the tiny chair, or if she was the one to put the stickers on the walls. And if so, what had become of her that she should still be hanging around here? We should have known better than to let Haley come up there, but there's no way we could have known what a bad decision this turned out to be. She immediately became interested in the small doors that opened into the rest of the attic. She peered inside and immediately started talking to someone. She wanted to go in, but was pulled back by my mom. She was fighting mad, yelling at us that she wanted to see scary. She described him as a little black boy who was crying and scared. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in the vicinity of anyone named Scary that lives in an attic that only a little girl can see. We all made a break for the stairs, my mom carrying the screaming Haley like a football. Once we got downstairs, safely locking the door behind us, we were able to get Haley settled and talk to her more about what she'd seen. We were relieved to find out that she had been trying to tell us that his name was Gary, not Scary but we were still pretty freaked out that we had another ghostly child in our house. At least we could shut the attic door and keep him out, right? Wrong. That night, after we had all gone to bed, I got a text from my mom. She simply said to come into her room. I hadn't been asleep yet, so I got up and went in to find my mom in tears. It seems that after she and Haley had laid down in the bed... As they did every night, Haley had started to pat the bed beside her and tell Gary he could sleep with them. My mom asked her to stop, but Haley insisted that Gary was sad and couldn't he sleep with them? My mom was terrified. She's a bit of a scaredy cat, and sharing her bed with a ghost was not something she was okay with, even if he was a little boy. I told her she was being silly, but inside... I knew Haley wasn't making up stories. It wasn't long before we deeply regretted opening the locked door. The activity cranked up, and it no longer felt innocuous. There was a presence to the place now, and it didn't feel like a little girl anymore. It didn't feel like a little boy either. It felt like something malevolent. The first thing we noticed were the maggots. We didn't have air conditioning, but I don't think hot weather can account for maggots forming on food within less than an hour. The first time this happened, we had just made hamburgers for dinner. We got what we wanted and placed the rest in the oven, just in case anyone wanted seconds before putting them in the refrigerator. We ate and watched some TV, and when it became apparent that no one was going to be eating more, my mom told me to go put them away. I opened the oven door and pulled the pan out halfway before screaming and slamming the door shut again. There was a mass of maggots roiling on the surface of the burgers. They were the biggest maggots I had ever seen before or since. And they had shown up within the hour. I'm no entomologist, but from my research on the subject, it generally takes, at the very least, eight hours for maggots to hatch, much less grow to that size. My mom threw the food away, pan and all, and we tried to pretend it was the hot weather that caused it. 
things were moved. Important things usually moved to places we would never find them until after the need for the item had gone. Some things we just never found. Footsteps were heard in the other rooms when no one was there. On more than one occasion, when I would be asleep in my room, something that looked like me would walk through the living room, or my brother would see me in the bathroom when I was clearly sitting in the living room. Something I didn't notice until after the whole ordeal was over was that Angela was strangely absent. Haley didn't talk about her or Gary much anymore. Now, I think they must have been as scared of what had been unleashed from the attic as we pretended not to be. My pets began dying. I lost two guinea pigs and two kittens in the span of a month. Granted, the kittens were newborns, much too young to be away from their mother. A friend's brother had found them and given them to me to raise. But the bigger kitten had been doing well, up until the day he was left alone for the first time when school started back. The guinea pigs seemed to just stop breathing in their cage overnight. First one, then the other. The sadness and oppressive feeling of the house were weighing me down. I was moody and irritable and jumping at every little sound or movement. We all began finding reasons to stay out of the house more. On one such night, we went to visit a friend of my mom's. All of us but Ted. He was new to being allowed to stay home alone, and he was the only one who seemed oblivious to all that was going on in the house. Against my mom's better judgment, we left him there and had a nice few hours away. It was getting dark when we pulled onto the street but we could just make out Ted walking up and down the driveway. As soon as he saw us, he broke into a run and jumped into the van, almost before my mom could stop it. His face was pure white and tears stood in his eyes. He begged my mom to turn around and leave. He didn't care where we went to, but he didn't want to go back into that house ever again. He actually screamed when my mom moved the van forward. We were all terrified at this point, unsure of what had happened to make him so afraid. My mom reversed down the street and pulled back onto the main road. Once the house was out of sight, he had calmed down enough to tell us what happened. He said that he was in his room, playing PlayStation with the sound up, when he heard what sounded like crying from the other room. At first, he assumed that we had just come back for something and one of the girls was crying. But the longer it went on, the more he started to think something else was going on. So he paused his game, which made the crying sound even louder. At this point, he could tell it wasn't one of us. It didn't sound like us. I'll never understand why he decided to leave his room, but he did. He found that the noise was coming from the living room, and when he peeked around the doorway, he saw a female figure sitting on the floor, in the corner beside the couch. She had her knees drawn up to her chin and her head bowed so that her long, dark hair hung down, obscuring her face. He was in shock and thought some crazy person had broken in. The cordless phone was lying on the couch. This was before people had cell phones in elementary school. He was trying to figure out what to do when it was as if she sensed him standing there and stopped crying, whipping her head around to look at him. He said that it was clear by the way she moved that she was not a real, live person, 
Her movements were lightning fast. When she saw him cowering behind the door jamb, she threw her head back and started to cackle. He was frozen in place until she stopped laughing and looked at him again, with savage hate in her eyes. He said the last thing he saw was her springing forward in a disjointed crawl before he turned and ran from the house, slamming the door behind him. He stayed outside pacing the driveway and being eaten up by mosquitoes until we got home. He point-blank refused to ever enter that house again. We ended up staying the night with the same friend we had visited earlier. It was a little awkward to explain that we were scared to go home because our house was haunted, but there was no way any of us wanted to sleep there that night. The next morning, my mother and I went back to the house alone. We believed my brother, but we wanted to be sure there were no signs of the house being broken into. All of the doors and windows were locked and intact. There was no sign anyone had even been in the house until we entered the bathroom. At first glance, everything looked normal. Then we pulled the shower curtain back. In the bathtub were six eviscerated mice. They were quite literally ripped limb from limb. Blood was splattered all over the tub and fingerprints dotted the walls. The only way to tell there had been six mice was to count the tails. Unlike every family in every horror movie, we did the smart thing. We left. We moved in with the previously mentioned friend until we could find another place. My mom took the hit to her credit for breaking the lease, but it was worth it in all of our minds. Before we left, we made sure that we had Angela's picture, and we invited her and Gary to come with us. No child should be left alone with whatever my brother saw, living or dead. From time to time, for years after we moved, a neighbor or a friend would comment on the little blonde girl in the white dress in our house, asking who she was and telling us she had smiled at them and was just as pretty as a picture. Then, of course, we would pull out her picture and delve into the story, and they would usually not visit again. Several years later, we had a fire in our apartment, and Angela's picture was lost. We haven't had any more sightings of her since. We like to believe that she was finally released from this world, and has been reunited with her loved ones. Now, we can look back on our experience in the house on Campground Road as a unique experience that not many get to have. But I know for a fact that we never want to experience anything like it again. When your hometown is struck by a natural disaster, it can bring all sorts of memories to the surface. When there's a hint that the disaster may be less than natural, it's even more conflicting. But in this tale, shared with us by author Alex Taylor, we discover that it's a certain old structure which might hold the key to the entire mystery. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Jesse Cornett, 
Ellie Hirschman, Nicole Goodnight, and David Alt. So listen carefully, and not just to the chimes, because we're about to meet the thing in the bell tower. I knew it was no tornado that brought Ashland to the dust. Despite what I heard, despite what all the papers said, I knew. The ancient town held too many dark secrets for any natural storm to spell its destruction. Things that should have been buried long ago rose to the surface in that place. Things no human eyes should have ever seen. And most were blind to it. I alone shook at the thought of the unmentionable horrors that lurk around every corner of that cursed town. Those I spoke to told me that I couldn't trust my perception, that loss and grief can force the mind to conjure otherworldly images where no supernatural force exists. And I believed them for a time. I believed that childhood trauma can manifest as imperceptible shadows or imaginary creatures with too many eyes and fangs. But when I read that the entirety of my hometown had been obliterated by the storm, I knew that all I ever doubted was real. The train I took toward the town from which I had tried so long to escape was empty and cold. The other passengers all disembarked at the popular stops. Greenville, Fairview, Madison Station. I alone was left in the metal cage that shook slowly onto Ashland. I wore a long brown overcoat. The winter months were bitter, and carried with me only a flashlight and an old book lodged firmly in my pocket. I had neither the desire nor the mental fortitude to withdraw what lay within, and I forced myself not to think of it. Those mad words and decrepit pages were useless to me. They served only to fuel a nightmare I desperately hoped was illusion. Though Ashland's fate left little doubt, I wished that I was mistaken. Perhaps I would find that I was insane, that all that occurred in that ancient town was explainable. I shuddered to think of the contrary. The train, whose foggy windows made a green blur of the world outside, shrieked and hissed as it pulled alongside the outdoor platform. I drew in a breath and hesitated a moment. Perhaps I would take the train to the next destination, stop at a little cafe, and forget about the small town that plagued my dreams. After all, little physical trace of it remained. Why waste time and thought on a place that no longer existed? And yet, I knew that I would only delay the inevitable. As long as I continued to wait, the dreams would continue. 
The continual catch in my throat, the twitch in my neck that forced me to look over my shoulder. These would not cease until I forced myself to confirm either my suspicions or my insanity. I rose from my seat and trudged to the door. As it opened, a frigid blast of air entered the car. I pulled my jacket tighter and felt the spine of the book in my pocket digging into my ribs as I stepped off the train. The wind threw the corners of my coat to one side. I screwed up my eyes and hugged my shoulders as I walked down a set of rusted metal steps and felt the gravel of the one-mile road that led to the center of town crunch underfoot. Ashland was lucky that a station had been built nearby. The town was so small that its construction baffled many of the citizens. My father was particularly surprised by it. Stephen, do you ever wonder why the train runs near Ashland? I never could figure it out. I always heard the whistle blowing at night, but I never understood why it came this way. I know the tracks were laid out after the town was built. I've seen some of the dates in those old buildings at the south end. But now they've put up a station. Huh, can you believe it? It's a little old thing, but they built it anyway. All for a small town that doesn't get many visitors. <laughs> I don't get it. I didn't care enough to listen then. I was too busy flirting with lands of make-believe. The only problems that mattered to me were those of my own invention. So I would nod along without hearing what he said. And now, I stood reminiscing, wishing the station had never been built. I might have had an excuse not to return if it didn't exist. Though perhaps, I never would have escaped without it. The same train had carried me away when I fled from the terrible things I saw. And though they were disappointed that they had to leave the place where they grew up, my parents knew that I could not receive the care I needed in Ashland. I didn't sleep soundly until we were miles away from the source of my trauma. I was silent for weeks. And when I finally spoke, I couldn't bear to talk about what occurred. My family settled into our new home 50 miles from Ashland, and soon my experience faded in everyone's memory but my own. Shivering, I walked along the gravel road toward Ashland. The wind and the groaning of the trees at the roadside were the only sounds I heard. And as I crested the top of a hill, I could see the town, or what remained of it, sprawled out across the plain ahead. The reports I heard were not exaggerated. Each building had been ravaged. Some still clung weakly to sagging roofs, and others that I knew from childhood were reduced to piles of rubble Heaps of brick and shingles scattered about the town. Vehicles were overturned. Every window was shattered. Street lamps were bent in half or torn from the ground like fallen trees. 
Other ghastly shapes littered the ground, and I gagged involuntarily as I made out their forms. Here, a man's arm hung limply from a pile of debris. There, a person lay impaled by a jagged beam of wood. My breath grew shallow, and I put my hands on my knees to keep from becoming dizzy. Eventually, my gaze fixated on one of the few signs of movement among the ruins. A man in a blue jacket was stepping over pieces of rubble, searching the ground. I gritted my teeth and made my way toward him, careful not to allow my peripheral vision to notice the rotting consequences of the town's destruction. My steps were quick and my vision singular as I moved down the hill. He didn't seem to notice my approach. He was looking intently at the ground as I grew closer. I noticed, as I could see him better, that he dragged alongside him a long blue bag that matched his coat. And I did not dare to guess at what was inside. When I drew within earshot, I called out to him, and he raised his head inquisitively toward me. Hello? My, my name is Stephen Andrews. They sent you here to help clean all this mess up? No, I used to live here. I climbed over a fallen wall as he rolled his eyes and shook his head. Figures. Ah. They sent me out here just about by myself, and now we're getting tourists. I look. There's nothing to see here, man. Unless you're one of those sick people who like looking at dead stuff. I suggest you leave the way you came. I, I can't. I... I swallowed to gather my composure. The man was now directly before me. His hair was dark and matted down against his head, and dark rings lined his eyes. I had to see it for myself. That's terrible. This much destruction? And they only send three or four guys to help clean it all up. The town's practically a graveyard. I don't know why they even bother, honestly. You... you alright there, bud? <laughs> you looking a little pale. I nodded weakly. The bag he carried had taken on a familiar shape and I was afraid I knew all too well what lay inside. He must have seen me staring at the bag, because he looked down at it too. Uh, I don't enjoy the job, you know? Uh, it's no fun for anyone, but somebody's gotta do it. I'm the only one with a stomach for it, so they send me. It's not so much the look that gets to me, but the smell. But I get through it, because that's what I'm paid to do. Anyway, I'm supposed to try and identify them all, but I don't have a clue who the hell any of these people are. Hey, you said you used to live here, right? Maybe you can help me out. He started to undo the zipper at the side, but he stopped when I cried out. Don't. 
He looked up at me for a moment and closed the zipper. Uh, you're just making it harder on me, man. But suit yourself. I'll just mark him down as John Doe number 46. <sighs> he drew a pen from his pocket and began to scribble on a tag tied to the zipper. As he wrote, I tried to gather the words that stuck to the insides of my throat. I knew I had to ask, but I feared the response. These people, do you really think they were killed by a tornado? He blinked at me in disbelief for a moment. When he saw my grave countenance and recognized that I was serious, he ran a gloved hand through his hair. I don't know. That's not really my job to say. But if it wasn't a tornado, I don't know what else it could have been. Not that it really matters. And dead is dead. He went back to what he was doing before. And the whole town is like this? Yep. Pretty much. Even... I could feel the blood rushing to my head as I spoke, as if resisting what I was about to say. Even the bell tower? The man bit his lip, seemingly unsure of what I was talking about, and relief began to course through me. When he responded, all my breath went out of me. Oh, you mean that old thing about a half mile east of here? I think I know what you're talking about. I saw it when I first came in. Kind of creepy looking, if you ask me. Anyway, it held up pretty well. There may be a little damage, but it's just about the only upright thing around. It was probably far enough away from town that it didn't get hit as hard. I felt as if I had taken a blow to the stomach. My hands trembled and spots swam before my eyes. I had feverishly clung to the hope that the bell tower fell with the rest of the city. Instead, that dark place still stood, just as it had for centuries. Managing to say a brief thank you, I hurried off in another direction. I had to collect myself or risk fainting. It took me several minutes to gather my thoughts and regain my composure. And even then, I couldn't stop my bottom lip from quivering. I stood amidst the wreckage of buildings I once knew, with my hands on my knees, reeling in shock. The tower that plagued my nightmares still lived, and my fear along with it. I couldn't see the bell tower from where I stood, and I was thankful it was so. A large mound of earth the townspeople called Sentinel Hill rose between the town and the barren field where the bell tower stood. It shielded Ashland from view of the bell tower, though the hill itself was neither steep nor treacherous. But superstition lay like a thick blanket over its sparse grass. So few ever climbed it. There was something unnatural about that hill and the plain that ran beyond. Perhaps it was the thinning patches of growth at its peak, or the shadow it cast when the sun hung low in the sky that gave it an ominous air. 
Perhaps the way the bell tower passed it stuck up like a black thorn amidst the plains was enough to deter people from the banks of the hill. I knew only that I was warned as a child to stay away from that place. That strange things happened there, and it was safer to stay far from its menacing form. The first time I visited that hill, it was with the rush of exultation that a child feels when breaking rules laid out for him. Now, as I looked on its somber shape with eyes full of experience and a mind troubled by the horrors of its past, I felt none of that excitement. I dreaded the climb that once expanded my mind and loosed my imagination. But I forced my feet to shuffle through the debris towards that abhorrent hill. I had come this far and could not turn away now. If I did, I knew I would have to return to Ashland again, and I didn't think I had the strength to make the journey once more. I balled my fists and began to trudge through the wreckage towards Sentinel Hill. Gradually, as I walked, the rubble disappeared. Rough grass, blighted by the winter temperatures, replaced the fragments of Ashland, and I could feel panic rising in my pulse. I forced myself to remain calm, reciting in my head memorized phrases I was taught by therapists to avoid a breakdown. Peace and joy are in my grasp. I am in charge. I let go of all that troubles me. I repeated these words until their cadence matched my weary steps, and in time, I became less tense. It took me nearly 20 minutes to mount the side of the hill, and soon I could see the flat and rounded peak before me. Peace and joy are in my grasp. I made the last few steps toward the top and closed my eyes. I am in charge. I could feel the curvature of the earth below me flatten. I let go of all that troubles me. I stopped a moment to prepare myself before I opened my eyes. I saw trees in the far distance, flat plains of grass that stretched before them, and then I saw it. The bell tower. Burned forever into my memory 16 years earlier, was the same as I remembered it. Crafted of some dark material reminiscent of obsidian, it rose from a patch of barren earth. Its belfry was topped by an iron spike that pointed like a demon's barb into the sky, and the bell within was black and motionless. No nests could be found at its peak, and not even a crow was perched upon that bleak tower. I shuddered at the sight and began to sway. My throat constricted, and I fell forward to my hands and knees. My lungs were useless, my airway but a straw 
and bright pins began to dart in and out of sight as memories I killed when I was a child came roaring back to life. The way Jack looked at me all those years ago, as we lay peering over the edge of Sentinel Hill, came back to me first. His eyes were blue and glittering with anticipation, and his dark hair hung wildly about his face. We were both twelve then, and his youthful grin dragged a smile from my lips. He pointed into the distance. Look, you can see the bell tower from here. Isn't it pretty? I don't know. It looks kind of creepy to me. It's mysterious, I think. Who do you think built it? I think it must have been the first people that ever lived here. It definitely doesn't look like any of the other buildings in town. Yeah, I guess you're right. Mysterious. He looked at me with a smirk. You want to go check it out? But my parents told me... Oh, Stephen, don't you dare go near that bell tower. It's so scary and so dangerous. My parents said the same thing about Sentinel Hill. But we're sitting here, aren't we? The wind picked up and blew a piece of his hair across the middle of his face. Come on, what are you waiting for? You even brought your flashlight like I told you. So don't let it go to waste. The bell never rang in our entire lives. And now that it has, you're not curious? Who could have even rung it? That place is boarded up more than a crack house. I can't believe you let your parents scare you like that. I'm not going to let some made-up stories keep me from going down there. With that, he stood and sprinted down the hill. I followed him, giggling as I ran. The first and last time I heard the ringing of the bell occurred in the middle of a thunderstorm. It was faint, almost imperceptible. Some people even claimed they never heard it. Those that admitted they noticed the sound said that the wind must have blown the bell hard enough for it to toll. But people didn't like to talk about it. It was old and decrepit and didn't matter anymore, they said. But to me and Jack, the sound of the bell tolling amidst the thunder resounded like a call to adventure. It was all we talked about for several days until we finally worked up the courage to climb Sentinel Hill and stare at its spectral form. The wind carried our laughter behind us as we ran down the side of the hill. I chased Jack until we stood breathless and panting at the base of the tower. Any entrance that might have led inside was covered by thick wooden boards. Each board stood ten feet high, and the tower was much taller than it looked from afar. It must have been a couple hundred feet from the ground to the tip of the belfry, and standing at the bottom, we could no longer see the bell. While I still struggled to catch my breath, Jack began to circle the base of the tower. It was fifteen feet long on any of its four sides, and he disappeared for a moment as he walked around it. When he came back into view, he was chewing on his bottom lip. Damn, those boards go all the way around. How are we supposed to get in there? 
Maybe we can't. Shut up. Jack crossed his arms and stared at a corner of one of the boards. He paced over to it and began to kick at the edge. Stop it. You're gonna break something. That's the point, idiot. These boards are still wet from the rain, and I think if I can kick hard enough... As he said this, the corner of the plank pulled free from the wall an inch. Jack grinned and renewed his assault against the board. Get over here and help me with this. I joined him, and we took turns kicking the board until it tore partially from the wall, exposing a doorway into the tower. Without a word, Jack wedged himself underneath the corner of wood and pushed open the door. The hinges screeched as it fell inward, and he looked back at me with a wolfish grin before pulling a silver flashlight from his pocket. He gestured for me to follow and ducked into the bell tower. I hesitated for a moment, unsure if I should enter. But childhood bravery overcame my sense of foreboding, and I stepped inside. The only light in the tower was the thin sliver that filtered in through the hole we had created. It shone across the floor for a few feet, illuminating suspended dust in the air and revealing stone that looked as if it had not been walked upon in centuries. I could hear Jack's footsteps as he walked further inside, kicking up clouds of dirt, and he clicked his flashlight on as he retreated from the lone shaft of sunlight. It threw a wide beam against the wall of the tower, which was the same dark color on the inside as it was on the outside. In the darkness, I couldn't see Jack, but I watched as he threw light across each of the walls. I withdrew my own flashlight, and Jack started in surprise as he was suddenly illuminated. Hey, shine that somewhere else. What's that behind you? Very funny. No, I'm serious. He turned to see where I was aiming the light. Suspended in the air, stretching down from where I supposed it met the bell, was an enormous chain. Each of the links must have been a foot long. Isn't that supposed to be a rope? I think so. I lowered the light along the length of the chain until I reached the floor, where to my surprise, a gaping hole allowed it to continue underground. Do you see that? Yeah. Where do you think it goes? Before I could respond, we were both startled by a third voice that sounded faintly from somewhere inside the tower. Jack and I at once turned to look at each other, wide-eyed. We stared in silence, jaws open, as the cries of hello continued. Jack swept his beam across the room, but we couldn't see anyone else in the tower. Yeah, we're here. Where are you? 
She didn't respond for a moment. There was something odd in the way she paused, but I paid it no mind. I'm down here. It became clear that her voice was emanating from the pit into which the chain extended. Jack walked over to the edge of the pit, which was no more than three feet in diameter, and shone his flashlight into the void below. The massive chain extended about 20 feet down where it coiled like a serpent on the stone floor. At one end of the pile of chains, its length continued past where we could see through the hole above. I don't see you. Come walk into the light. Again, there was a strange pause before she spoke. I I can't move. I didn't see the hole and I fell down. I I think my legs broke. Please help me, mister. All right. I'm going to come down and get you. No. What? No. I don't understand. Don't come down here. If you want to help me, you have to get the key. It's sitting in the top left drawer of the desk against the wall. Jack threw his arms up in the air and looked at me. I responded with a shrug. What are you talking about? Don't come down here. Don't come down here. Just get the key, please. All right. My friend here will go get the key for you. But I'm going to come down there and get you. I shook my head wildly, but Jack mouthed, Yes, you will, and reached out over the pit to grab the chain. Jack gestured for me to move, so I began to walk along the length of the walls, searching for the desk. After a few moments, I found it. It was an ancient thing, barely standing and coated in a thick layer of dust. On top sat a book bound in black leather, and without thinking, I swiped it into my pocket before pulling open the top leftmost drawer. As it slid open, I could hear the chain shaking slightly and the sound of muttered curses as Jack grabbed a hold of it and began to climb downward. His descent was marked by a sudden unresponsiveness from the little girl, and she went silent as Jack made the climb. Inside the grimy drawer, I saw an enormous key. It was made of iron so rusted that I thought picking it up might break it into pieces. As I reached to grab it, I heard the sound of Jack's feet hitting the ground below. What the hell? My fingers brushed the rough edge of the key. I whipped around and sprinted to the edge of the pit. Jack! Are you okay? What happened? I cast my light into the pit and thought I saw a dark blur of movement sweep across the floor. The end of the chain faintly shook. All I could see was Jack's flashlight rolling from side to side on the ground below. Everything is okay. 
It was Jack's voice, but it wasn't Jack's voice. There was something alien in the tone and discordant in the pitch that made me shiver. I just fell down. Everything is okay. Just throw me the key, please. What the hell are you talking about, Jack? Say something normal! Throw me the key, please. At that moment, I began to sob. My body shook and I threw my head from side to side. (laughs) No. No. Throw me the key, please. There was a flash of movement, and I staggered backward, screaming. I thought I caught an image of black, scaly skin, of sharp, jagged teeth, of far too many green, glowing eyes. I stammered madly and fled through the opening we had created, crying as I ran. I couldn't breathe. My breaths came in a rapid, wheezing manner that hardly provided any air as the memory subsided. For several minutes, I couldn't move, and the thought that I might die of my own fear in front of the tower that haunted me for so long seemed fitting. My limbs trembled, and I curled into a ball at the top of Sentinel Hill. I left him. I left him behind in that horrible place. Nothing happened. It was all my imagination. And I left him behind to die. The thought that I had abandoned Jack all those years ago That was the reason he was never seen again, overcame me. I began to shake uncontrollably. All confidence I had in what I had seen slipped away. The years of therapists that told me my mind was making it up to hide my grief began to convince me that I was insane, that I never had the experiences that felt so real. Perhaps it was all a manifestation of grief or of guilt. Perhaps the little girl, the strange disembodied voices, and the rusted key were all illusions crafted by my unconscious brain. As I struggled there on the ground, unsure of what was real and what was false memory, my hand came to rest on the book in my pocket. My pulse slowed, and I withdrew it from its place. It was still bound in the same black leather cover it had when I first picked it up off that dilapidated desk. I had studied it for hours on end after Jack disappeared. Most of it was useless. A diary written by a man who lived in the 1700s. Except... For a few tear-stained pages, which I had committed to memory. 
Though I didn't need to open the book, I did so anyway. If only to assure myself of its reality. The page I turned to read in a scrawling script. November 14th, 1737. The aforementioned beast claimed another life yesterday. None know whither his body has gone. But after his death, we devised a trap. It was a clever contraption of steel and springs, the design of which I know nothing about. Once the thing was captured, however, we discovered that it could not be killed, though we fired many musket rounds at its hide to test its strength. The thing was wounded, I believe. It entered a trance-like state wherein it no longer responded to any form of violent stimulation. Disheartened as we were that, no matter what action we took, it yet continued to breathe, we formulated a method to keep the beast permanently restrained. Heavy chains shall be shackled to its limbs so that it cannot move, and should it awaken after all of us are gone to heaven, we will attach a bell to the end of the chain. If it moves, therefore, anyone living nearby will have reason for alarm and be alerted of its awakening. It is my sincere hope that this precaution is entirely unnecessary, and that the slumbering monster shall never open its many eyes again. If it is loosed, it can only spell destruction, and it shall take many more lives than it already has. I let the book fall from my hands as my breath gradually returned. I was not crazy. The diary was proof. The thing that killed my friend did exist, and my memories could be trusted. In the course of a few minutes, I was able once more to stand, though on shaky legs. I descended Sentinel Hill in slow and measured strides, watching my feet as I walked. The wind whipped around me and I pulled my jacket tighter around my shoulders. It took me much longer to reach the base of the tower than it had when I was a child, still carefree and innocent. Now the heavy weight of experience slowed my progress. The tower loomed before me, a shard of night rising from the ground. It only differed from my memory in one way. One of the boards that surrounded the tower had been ripped from the wall and sat 20 feet away in the thinning grass. It left exposed a door that was similarly destroyed, as it hung limply from one of its hinges. The entrance yawned before me, and the little light that penetrated inside revealed the same stone floor I remembered. As I walked closer, however, I noticed that the dust had been cleared from the floor in a wide swath. I could feel another panic attack approaching as I neared the threshold, 
and I paused for a moment to steady my breath. If I couldn't do it for myself, I would do it for Jack. I had to know what happened that day. I had to discover the truth of my past. Silence met my ears as I shuffled past the broken door and into the tower. Though I carried a flashlight with me, I didn't dare to turn it on. For I knew that anything could dishearten and send me screaming from that horrid place. Once the dim light was exhausted, and I was left in utter darkness, I began to crawl on all fours, groping for the hole that led into the underground pit. Hello? I dreaded a response, but none came. Is anyone here? I heard only the muffled echo of my words as I continued to inch toward the pit. My right hand suddenly fell through the floor, and I knew that I had reached the edge. Sobs began to shake my ribcage, but I managed to call out in a broken voice. Jack? Not even a stirring of the chains answered my cry and bitter tears began to fall from my eyes. I reached forward over the pit and grabbed hold of the enormous chain. If my descent meant death, so be it. And if it proved that I was mad and that I left my friend alone to die in the dark, at least I would know the truth. The climb was slow and meticulous. At each moment I expected to feel claws upon my back or piercing fangs in my throat. But as I continued and felt the air grow colder around me, nothing stirred. My feet found the floor and I braced myself for what was to come. I fumbled for the flashlight in my pocket with unsteady hands. It was cold and heavy, like the air around me. My thumb rested on the switch, and I took in a sharp breath. I was beginning to feel faint. I pressed downward, and a cone of light illuminated the darkness. My jaw fell, and I swayed to one side. Something caught in my throat, a scream, I thought, before it burst forth in a cackle. I waved the flashlight wildly about me on all sides and saw more of the same. The creature I glimpsed in my childhood was nowhere to be found. Around me on all sides lay ivory piles of bones, skulls that grinned in frozen amusement, femurs and ribs that rested atop one another in haphazard fashion. The ground beneath the plains, stretching for what seemed like miles, was an enormous tomb 
that held the remains of those who fell victim to the thing in the bell tower. At the end of the chain, I saw open shackles and a familiar, rusted key protruded from the lock. The last thing I saw before I fell unconscious in a seizure of furious laughter was an item I recognized. A small silver flashlight, the bulb cracked and broken, coated in dust, with the name Jack etched into the side. In our final tale, we meet a man whose wife has suffered a tragic accident and has been placed in a medically induced coma. This is hard enough, but trying to balance his bedside vigil with the needs of his young twin daughters is even harder. But in this tale, shared with us by author Tiffany Michelle Brown, things take a turn for the strange when, one day, the man discovers one of his wife's teeth has fallen out. But, well, it's a part of her, so why not keep it as a memento? Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Nicole Goodnight, Nicole Doolin, and Jeff Clement. So try and keep it together during a tragedy for yourself and those around you. Otherwise, you might find my love in pieces. Cell phones were never allowed in the drop-off line at Bailey and Emily's school because, as the other parents were quick to say, they held everything up. I knew this, but there was something so out of place about a phone call before 10. Sure, you regularly sent me text messages, wishing me a good day or letting me know I'd forgotten my coffee on the kitchen counter, but you rarely called. You only called if something was wrong, which is why I broke the rules and reached for my phone. But it wasn't you. I didn't recognize the number. Grasping for a safe, mundane explanation, I convinced myself that it was one of our Japanese investors with an urgent business matter, but that didn't make sense. The number had a local area code, and the hour wasn't optimal for business in Japan. Unease slithered into my gut as I hit the answer button. As it turns out, reasonably so. It was a medical admin at Madison County who was trying to reach me. In a raspy voice, undoubtedly the byproduct of years and years of chain smoking, the woman told me there'd been an accident. You'd been admitted to the ICU, and I should come quickly. In slow motion, the bottom of my world fell out from under me. My stomach flip-flopped and my blood ran cold in spite of the car heater belching out stale, warm air. Bailey and Emily were carrying on in the back, completely unaware of my sudden concern, singing along to some YouTube video. No doubt you would have scolded me for supplying them with brain candy right before school, but, but you weren't there to reprimand me. You were... Wait! I choked it out, a command directed at both the admin and our girls. 
I turned in my seat and waved a hand at our pink-clad daughters and told them to stay put. Daddy would just be a minute. I yanked the car into park, threw open the door, and stepped out into the bitter cold. It wrapped around me like an icy python, darting into every available crevice, looking to snuff out every ounce of warmth my body held. My teeth clattered as I shut the car door. A school guard wearing a neon reflective vest approached me, but I growled. I literally growled at her, which worked. She held up her gloved hands in defeat and trudged away to call out someone else breaking the child drop-off protocol. In a voice barely above a whisper, I asked the admin to repeat everything she'd said. In a patient practice voice, she told me your car had succumbed to the ice. It spun out of control and hit an oak tree. You'd suffered a number of injuries on impact, and to help you recover, the doctors had placed you in a medically induced coma. I leaned my full weight against the car, my heart racing, my brain spinning. They did what? It's the safest way for her to recover. You should come to the hospital. We can tell you more when you arrive. Of course. Uh, of course. I'll be there as soon as I can. By the time I hung up, I was completely numb from both the relentless cold and the horrific news. In spite of the shock, my innate pragmatism took over. Thank God. I made two more phone calls. One to Rhonda, asking her to reschedule all of my meetings and calls for the week. And another to Felicity, asking her to watch the girls. The snarling heat of the car's interior should have been welcome. You always claimed I ran it far too hot. But as I climbed back inside and gripped the steering wheel to steady my nerves, the hot air felt suffocating. I cleared my throat and willed my words to come out smoothly and calmly. I couldn't lose it in front of our daughters. Change of plans, girls. No school today. Instead, we're going to have a fancy tea party and French toast with Aunt Felicity. Yay! As the girls cheered from the back seat, my heart pinwheeled and I swallowed bile. I wasn't ready to see you like that, broken and bandaged and so very ashen. Your skin, once the color of fresh cream, was the color of dirty snow. Your face was swollen and bruised, a misshapen piece of fruit thanks to the airbags. Your leg was broken in two places, but it had been reset and shrouded in plaster. The doctor said one of your lungs had collapsed and you had a concussion. Your injuries were many, thus the medically induced coma. They had you on painkillers and steroids and other medications that had so many syllables I wondered if the doctor was making them up for my benefit. The worst part was that wretched plastic tube down your throat, the contraption responsible for your breathing, since you could no longer manage that on your own. I couldn't see you. I couldn't see my wife, the shining constant in my life. My chest grew hot as a branding iron, and I'd feared I'd spontaneously burst into flame. My flesh would drip from my bones, and then, then I'd be unrecognizable to you, too. Maybe that would be better. She'll wake up, right? The doctor gave me a kind smile. In time, yes. We'll take her off the barbiturates that keep her under as soon as possible, but she still has a lot of healing to do. 
I can't give you a definite time frame. Of course, we'll do everything we can to aid in her recovery. It wasn't the answer I wanted. My fists curled and hardened at my side, ready to fly. But I held the impulse in. They were just trying to help. I told the doctor thank you and shook his hand, though my palm was cold and clammy. He left the room and we were alone. I sank into a chair. I ran my hands through my hair and listened to the metallic beep of your heart. It's a cliche, but it all felt like a bad dream. I thought of that morning, of the time before. You'd surprised me, climbing atop my hips in the gray light of the dawn, bringing your finger to your lips while grinning mischievously. You bit my shoulder to keep from waking the girls. You smiled at me. You gnashed your teeth in the throes of our lovemaking. You were so warm and alive. A fine pressure mounted in my chest, and I tucked my head between my knees to alleviate a sudden swoon. As I gulped in sour hospital air, an object on the floor near your bed caught my attention. It was blindingly white, slightly round with distinct grooves, no larger than a fingernail. I lowered myself to the linoleum and crawled towards the object until your hospital bedclothes kissed my shoulders. I held it up to the light. It was a tooth, an incisor, freshly lost by the look of it. But how did it get there? Was it yours? Did the doctors knock it out when they inserted your breathing tube? I hoisted myself up and stared down at you. I rolled the tooth between my fingers. It was like holding a piece of a puzzle, but not knowing if it fit anywhere. Of course, I had to know. The action felt unclean, treacherous even, but ever so gently, I curled your lip up towards the ceiling. And there, along the top gum line, I found it. The absence of you. Mystery solved. I started down the corridor, ready to alert a nurse to my discovery. But I paused at the threshold. I looked at you, sleeping, shattered, soundless, and decided you'd been through enough for one day. I didn't want them touching and examining you again. I wanted you to rest. I wanted you to come back to me. And perhaps most importantly, I didn't want them to take this piece of you away from me. I slipped your tooth into the pocket of my woolen coat, sat down, and took your hand in mine. Felicity's eyes were swollen when I arrived home, and I was afraid she'd told Bailey and Emily what had happened to you. But she informed me that she hadn't, that she told them she was plagued with allergies, and they'd stopped asking questions once she turned on the TV. I made macaroni and cheese for dinner, from the box, with extra butter because we were out of milk, and I told the girls that you'd been in a bad accident. You were asleep, and you needed lots of rest to get better. Bailey asked if you'd become Sleeping Beauty, and that made me smile. Kind of. Their little faces were confused and half sad. I could tell they didn't know what to make of the news. The doctors are using all the magic they can to help Mommy wake up. She needs a kiss from a prince. Well, there aren't too many of those around. I realized much too late that I'd made a very adult jest to our very young children at a really terrible time to boot. 
You were always so much better at these things. You never faltered, never made a mistake. Daddy, did you kiss Mommy to try to wake her up? I hadn't. I couldn't. I kissed your fingertips, your forehead, your cheek, but there was no getting to your mouth. No way to kiss you properly. I gulped at my wine before answering. Of course I did, sweetheart. It didn't work? No, Em, it didn't. That admission made me feel like a failure. Bailey's eyes grew wet. Can we visit Mommy? In a few days, sweetheart. She might wake up by then. I didn't want them to see you yet. I hadn't been ready, so how could they be? I needed more time to prepare our girls. In the meantime, you don't have to go to school this week. Bailey gave me a half smile. Can I have Oreos? And I knew I'd give them all the junk food, the toys, the TV time that I could that week. I'd give them every material thing I could manage because I couldn't give them you. It was stupid and maudlin of me, but after I tucked in Bailey and Emily, I opened a new bottle of wine, sank down in the couch, and watched our wedding video. I remember balking at the costs and making comments about gutted bank accounts while you rolled your eyes at me. In the end, I never regretted forking over the cash for it. I'd always loved that video so damned much because I'd never seen you smile like you did on our wedding day. It was like you were filled with light, busting at the seams with happiness. Every moment that was captured that day, whether on film or video, featured you grinning like a love-struck idiot. But it made me extraordinarily happy. The thought that I could make you feel that way, it was second to none. Before I knew it, the bottle of Merlot was empty and our decorative pillows, the ones you picked down, were dark and wet. The video came to an end, the screen went dark, and I was swallowed by nighttime silence. Stumbling upstairs to our bedroom seemed a terrible idea, and climbing into bed without you beside me seemed impossible. I decided to sleep on the couch. I took off my coat and draped it over our recliner. I slipped off my loafers and set my glasses on the end table. I'd be sleeping in the clothes I'd worn that day, but I couldn't care less. I bundled up under the blanket your mother crocheted for us Christmas last year, and I tried to get comfortable. My body lazed and calmed, but my mind could not be quieted. The room spun. My mouth went dry. A new round of tears threatened to fall. Consumed by the easy darkness of the living room, I had never felt so alone. But then I remembered. I was up like a shot, groping around in the dim. The moment my hand dipped into my coat pocket, I felt better, more steady, less manic. Your tooth felt cool in my palm. It glowed in the shadows, a brilliant fragment of you. And I, I know it sounds crazy, but I felt like you were there. Perhaps on some other plane of reality, you were. Or maybe you hovered over me like an angel or a ghost, though I didn't really like those comparisons. For the first time since that morning, I felt like everything was going to be okay. I settled back into the couch, rolling bone between my fingers until I fell into a deep sleep and dreamed of your smile at our wedding. 
I woke to two sets of small hands tugging at my clothes. I fluttered my eyelids open and two blurry balls of energy danced before me. My head ached and my body felt pinched and cramped. I groaned a little and the girls <laughs> laughed. You slept on the couch? I did. And you lost a tooth. Emily was holding my hand and there in my palm your tooth twinkled in the morning light. I closed my hand and jerked to a sitting position. My brain spun and scrambled as a hangover pressed against my temples. Emily pried at my hand thinking it was a game. I kept my fist tight and fished for an explanation. It's mommy's tooth. It was the wrong way to start. Emily's eyes widened and she crumpled to the carpet wailing. In support of her twin sister, Bailey followed suit. Their harrowing cries escalated the pounding in my head. But that pain was nothing compared to my shame. What had I done? I'd scarred our children for life. That's what I'd done. Not 24 hours after breaking the news to them that their mother was in a coma, I'd shown them one of her extracted teeth. <sighs> I'm sure a child psychologist would have a field day with this. Girls, girls, the doctors taking care of mommy gave me this. I'm such a liar. That way it doesn't get lost. I can keep it safe. The crying continued, the girls inconsolable, and I had no idea what they were thinking. I grasped desperately for some semblance of an explanation they would understand. I took a breath and tried again. We don't want the tooth to get lost because then the tooth fairy won't be able to give mommy her prize. Bailey's cries softened and she turned her big green eyes up at me. I scooted off the couch to sit on the floor. I smoothed Bailey's hair back. Emily continued to whimper, but I knew if I could calm one of them, there was a good chance I could calm the other. Of course, honey. The Tooth Fairy always comes when anyone loses a tooth. But Mommy isn't here. The Tooth Fairy will still come here, and we can save the prize for when Mommy wakes up and comes home. Of course, I didn't know if you'd ever come back to us. Oh, the trauma I was inflicting. But it did the trick. Bailey crawled over and nestled in my arms. A few moments later, Emily joined her. It should have been nice, this family cuddle. But my skin felt slick and oily, and I was clutching your tooth so tightly in my fist, I could feel it biting into the flesh of my palm. That week, your prognosis remained the same, and our little family fell into a new routine. Felicity came over in the mornings. She made pancakes and poured cereal and did the girl's hair. I'd always been a disaster at that. And ultimately, kept them as calm and as happy as she could. Every day, she brought over something new. Coloring books, puzzles, movies. And I was filled with such gratitude. Her presence in our home allowed me the opportunity to be by your side. I was there the moment visiting hours began, and the nurses often had to kick me out of your room when night fell. I talked to you while you slept. I spent hours recounting the early days of our courtship, how you'd hooked me from the very beginning with your easy smile and boundless energy. You'd always shown, you know that? And everyone around you became etched in light. 
Perhaps that's why we all loved you so much. You made us better than we were, more brilliant, brighter. Though in your hospital bed that week, hooked up to gadgets that beeped and snarled, you'd dimmed. Your skin looked like brittle paper, and I could almost see through it. I could trace all your veins, your network of life. Though the thought of following that pattern across the whole of your body made me queasy. The bruises on your face bloomed and changed color, from startling purple to lazy green. Every day, the nurse on duty would say that you'd improved, that she'd seen new color blossom in your cheeks. It was a nice gesture, but I figured they said those things because they were sorry for me, not because you'd gotten any better. I decided they conspired together because they all said the same thing. I brushed your hair every day. We watched TV, though I felt guilty that I was forging ahead with the police procedural we usually enjoyed together every week. It was a small thing, but it felt like a betrayal. I decided I'd abstain from watching it the following week. I'd wait for you. I read you poetry, which you'd always adored and I'd never understood. Nothing changed in that regard. Except for the night that I had to place your tooth under a pillow to satisfy the girl's belief in the tooth fairy, I always kept it with me. I'd become increasingly protective of it. It was a part of you, and if you woke up, no, when you woke up, I knew you'd miss it. Sure, dentists can give you fake teeth, but there's something about having the original you intact, isn't there? And with your tooth at the ready, I'd be the fixer you'd always expected me to be. I'd be the one who could put you back together again. Sometimes I'd take the tooth out and marvel at it. You'd always had great hygiene, so it was impeccable, strikingly white though you never used any whitening toothpaste. Completely intact, without so much as a chip or a blemish or a stain. As long as it was whole, I was able to convince myself that you'd remain whole too. And since it never left my side, neither did you. The bar was dark and dirty and perfect and close enough to the hospital that I didn't feel guilty about going. It smelled like stale beer and bad decisions. Peanut shells crunched beneath my shoes and I made my way to a vinyl stool. The seat had been torn open and duct taped back together. I could relate. After spending a week watching over you, remaining a steadfast soldier by your hospital bed, I was coming apart at the seams. I needed a drink. Ordered some top shelf scotch and the petite bartender an older woman with bleached blonde hair and heavy makeup had to get out a stepladder to reach it. I saw her wipe dust off the bottle, too. You always hated it when I drank scotch. You said it made me taste like smoke. That night, that's how I wanted to feel. Like vapor. Like I could disappear. Because life without you? Well, the week had proven that it was all kinds of bullshit. After I downed two glasses of amber-colored liquid in quick succession, the bartender set the bottle on the counter next to me. She told me I could pour my own, but she'd be keeping an eye on me. I nodded and gave her a bleary wave. The alcohol had begun to lace my blood. My body grew warm. My fingers tingled. The edges of the room softened. I thought I was ready for what would come next. 
To tell you the truth, I expected to cry. I longed for it. I wanted to break down in front of strangers and wallow in their pity. I'd orchestrated the whole night, played it out in my mind. I'd go to a bar and share my sob story with any poor schmuck who'd listen. I'd tell them about you, about how great you are and how broken my life had become without you. My tears would earn them sympathy, a free drink, a pity fuck, anything would do. I never could have predicted that my sorrow would desert me in my hour of need, that white-hot rage would bubble to the surface in its place, that after I finished my fifth glass of scotch, I really wanted to punch something. The world could keep its condolences. I wanted a wild and violent release. The yearning for destruction snaked down my forearms and through my wrists. The weight of the empty tumbler in my palms felt satisfying and heady. I pushed hard against the glass, wondered how much strength it would take to crack it. The blonde bartender came over and wordlessly took the bottle away from me, but I didn't care. The alcohol was just a primer, and I'd had plenty. It was doing its job, bringing everything to the surface. I thought of you then, your jet black hair and your porcelain skin and your long neck and the way you could make me laugh even when the world was chaotic. I thought of our girls who inherited your dark hair, witty personality and fear of spiders. I thought of what their lives would be like if you didn't wake up. I thought of the doctors and nurses at the hospital who kept telling me all week to be patient and wait and let you rest. And suddenly it seemed like they hadn't been doing anything to help. And then I realized that I might lose you forever. I pushed back from the bar, growling, sending the vinyl stool tumbling. My arm made a swooping arc and threw something small to the floor. The object skittered and bounced. I stomped over to it and smashed it beneath my shoe. I heard a small, bright pop. And in that moment, it was the sweetest sound I'd ever heard. Looking back, I have no recollection of reaching into my pocket for your tooth. I just remember the noise it made when I crushed it beneath the heavy sole of my boot. Not long after, I was unceremoniously booted from the bar by a rough and tumble bouncer. I went quietly, meaning I didn't fight him. But I guess I wasn't all that quiet because the tears had finally come. I wailed and blubbered and stumbled through the cold, finally experiencing the rock-bottom release I thought I so desperately needed. But as I zigzagged across the parking lot, drifting toward drunken incoherence, I recognized that the cost had been much too high. I locked myself in my car, tossed my keys in the back seat, reclined at the driver's seat, and sobbed in confinement. I kept reaching into my pockets, hoping to find another piece of you, hoping that what had just happened in the bar had been a fever dream. But of course, I searched in vain. In my madness, I'd made sure there would be nothing left of you. The buzz of my cell phone against my leg woke me the next morning. My eyes flicked open and then demanded to be shut again when bright light barreled into my skull. The vibration in my pocket continued, so with my eyes screwed shut, I rummaged for the device. I brought it close to my face, cracked an eyelid just enough to see the screen for a nanosecond, 
and hit the answer button. I brought the phone to my ear. Hello? Is this Daniel Roberts? It is. I'm calling from Madison County Hospital. I have good news. Your wife, Claire, she woke up this morning. She's... she's... she's not in a coma anymore? My heartbeat surged. Heat welled behind my eyelids, urging them open. The morning light was unbearable at first, but I pushed through the pain. My sight was blurry as if I was underwater. Through the haze, I registered the outline of a steering wheel in front of me. It was my car. I groped at the dash, hoping it's true what they say, that old habits die hard. My fingers scrambled this way and that and eventually fell upon the familiar shape of my glasses. I slid them up the bridge of my nose, then blinked wildly. The first thing I saw clearly that morning was a sign proclaiming that this parking spot was for patients only. I was in the hospital lot. A wave of relief washed over me. I closed my eyes and let my body sink into the leather driver's seat. You'd come back to me, and I was close by. Soon I would gather you in my arms and the world would be right again. Yes, Mr. Roberts, your wife is awake. There was something wrong with the woman's voice, even as she recounted what was supposed to be happy news. There was a pause on the line, and the woman's voice again, nervous but firm. But I'm afraid there's been an incident. I felt like I stuck my finger in a light socket. I jolted upright, and the seatbelt was the only thing that kept me from slamming my chin into the steering wheel. An incident? What kind of incident? It appears that your wife was attacked last night. I unbuckled my seatbelt and reached for my woolen coat, which I'd thrown on the passenger seat. When I lifted the material, a fine tinkling sound filled the car. When my eyes lit on the sound's origin, I let out a strangled cry. Of course, the hospital admin didn't understand. She couldn't see what I saw. Mr. Roberts. I promise we're launching a full investigation into the matter. I flipped the driver's side sun visor down and peered into the mirror. My face was speckled with blood. Your wife may have been conscious at the time of the attack. We've tried to question her, gently of course, but she wouldn't stop screaming. We had to give her a mild sedative for her own safety. She's calmed down, but she keeps repeating your name. We think you being here could really help her. Also, the police are here. You should talk to them. Of course. Of course. I'll be right there. I let the phone slip from my fingers. Shaking, I forced my gaze back to the passenger seat. Medical instruments. Silver sharp and spattered with blood reflected in the gray light of the morning. Strewn among them were small pieces of bone, 31 individual fragments in total, all of them extracted from your perfect mouth. And then we were both screaming.
As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.